Hello, this is William Pink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, November 27th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we are here with our friend Truthfids to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 62 of that discussion. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening. In our last two proofs, we, which were presented here last week, we presented or we discussed Paul's commission as an apostle from Yahshua Christ, which states that he was to bear the name of Christ before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. As we translate Acts chapter 9, verse 15 or I should say, as we properly translate it. Doing this, we demonstrated how Paul had interpreted that commission as being to the 12 tribes of Israel, and also how he fulfilled it by bringing the gospel to the nations of Europe. Now we shall discuss other aspects of Paul's epistles, which also prove these things that Paul brought the gospel to Europe because he knew with all certainty that Europe is where the children of Israel had been scattered abroad, as well as Anatolia and other areas to the north of Palestine. But the scope of these subjects are not all limited to Paul's epistles. Truth fits. Thank you for joining us once again. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh. Yes, so um, here we're on to the subjects of redemption and, um, you know, who the Christians are. We've said it many times, but uh, it's clearly not uh, so, quote-unquote, believers or people who believe uh, in in Christ, Christianity, or maybe this denomination or that denomination, or maybe only if you've been baptized, it's clearly a race of people, right? And um, uh, in, in order to be redeemed, well, what what are you being redeemed from, right? And and it's clearly the all the Israelites that had been dispersed, the ones who left during the Exodus before, so they never received the law, but they they couldn't suddenly go and join the children of Israel because they wouldn't be circumcised, right? So they were cast off in a way, even though they were living happily. And and then you have the Israelites who got deported in both the deportation the uh, deportations and only God could bring them all together once more as one nation and that essentially is what Christianity is and that's why we all had to be redeemed right to be brought back in the presence of Yahweh under his law and that is essentially what Christianity is and all the churches have got it completely wrong right Bill? Well, well, right. They do all have it completely wrong. In in order for them to justify their universalism, they generally have to ignore half the scriptures. They have to remove certain passages or even sometimes certain phrases or, or single verses out of context and create their own explanation based on one phrase or one verse or one short passage that's being taken out of context while ignoring the rest of the scripture. That is how the churches operate. That's how they've always operated since the third century AD or the fourth century AD. 
where Christian identity doesn't take anything out of context. We focus on what each verse means in its context. And we believe all of the promises of God as they were stated, not as we would like to twist them. So the subjects of redemption are our next discussion, and and we should probably embark on that now. I don't know if I've answered your question. Yeah, exactly, and that we need to redeem, only the children of Israel uh, need to be redeemed, right, from breaking the law or being reconciled to Yahweh, right? And and that's something that's really essentially essential to understanding Christianity, right? Absolutely, and, and that is the basis for the promises of a Messiah, the promises of redemption, the promises of a new covenant in the first place. Without that, there is no reason for any of these things. There is no reason for Christianity, none whatsoever. And the New Testament explains those things. So here we are. There are often assertions made by denominational churches that Jesus came to redeem all of mankind or all men as a reference to every single biped that has ever existed regardless of race or any other aspect of a man's existence. Then they use the same concept to force Christians to accept people of all races and even grievous sinners such as sodomites or fornicators. But is that assertion really true? Did Jesus come to redeem all of mankind? Or do the scriptures inform us explicitly that Christ came to redeem only certain or particular men? And the scriptures inform us that Christ redeemed only a certain race or family of men. If they do that, how can the churches change that on their own? Who gave them the authority if it's not found in the Word of God? They actually have no authority. They have no authority for that. We, if we seek to obey God, we must obey his word because his word is all we have from him. As Christ, as Paul of Tarsus had said in, in the opening verse of the epistle to the Hebrews, in times past, Yahweh God spoke to us through the prophets and today he speaks to us through his son, if that son says that he came to fulfill the words that are in the prophets, how can the churches create any doctrines that are contrary to the words of the prophets? How can they do that? Where's their authority to do that? They have none. They're just the words of men. So do we obey God or do we obey men? That's what it boils down to. De obeying the, these denominational churches, I don't care how long they've been wrong. They've been wrong for 1,800 years. That doesn't make it right. And the verb um, that the whole term redeem implies that things were once good and now we need to go back, you know, to be redeemed. And uh, if, you, if you weren't created by God, but created 
uh, by fallen angels or, you know, however they were created, these other races, then they were never with Yahweh in the first place. So there's no path back to Yahweh, right? They, they can't be redeemed, right? Absolutely not, because they were not his in the first place. And and that that's that's another part of the issue is basically what does the human race need to be redeemed from? What gives them a a privilege or or a right to think that they're redeemed? What's the basis for that? If that basis is not found in the words of the prophets, then it, it's not a part of Christianity <clears throat> because Christ came to fulfill, fulfill the words of the prophets. So, the word redeem as a verb appears on nine occasions in the King James Version of the Bible of the English Bible. And one Greek word translated as redeem is the verb exagorazo, which according to Liddell and Scott means to buy from, to buy up or buy off or redeem, which is basically to buy back, to buy something back. And the noun, exagoracia, exagoracia, is ransom or redemption. And that's how it's defined by Liddell and Scott, primarily. Another word translated as redeem is more specific. The verb lutrao is to release on receipt of ransom or, in an appropriate context, to hold to ransom. And in the passive voice, to be ransomed. The noun lutrosis is properly the price of release, a ransom or the sum paid for ransom. So the actual act of ransoming is commonly described by the verb ex agorazzo, but the fact that you need to be ransomed or that you're held bound to something without a price being paid for you, because once the price is paid, then you're released. That's the lutrosis, right? So both of these words appear in the appropriate contexts in the New Testament. And since they all refer to the ransoming or the price paid by Christ to release the children of Israel from the penalties of the law, then they must both be understood in those various contexts. And, and one half of the equation can't be separated from, from one one of these words can't be separated from the meaning of the other word where it describes the situation where exagorazo describes the act of redeeming which is buying back lutrosis is the price of the release 
And of course, that was the sacrifice of Christ so that the children of Israel would be released from the law. So I probably could have written, I, I, I mean, my paragraph here in my notes is pretty brief, but I probably could have written a much longer treatise on that subject alone. And it's still, better. Modern, uh, modern churches, uh, even though the law was given to only the children of Israel, they seem to believe that it somehow applied to everyone, that everybody needs to re be redeemed from this law, even though it wasn't given to them, right? And they weren't even expected to hold it. So it, it makes no sense whatsoever when you actually just sit down and think about it, right? Right. And, and we will see here from the scriptures, from the Old Testament prophets, as well as the New Testament, that only the children of Israel had any cause, requirement, or expectation of redemption. So, the scope of the act of redemption in Christ is first explained in Luke chapter 1, where Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, declared, and this is under the inspiration of God, right? That this isn't just Zacharias's opinion. Zacharias was a priest and a prophet in his own right. And that's why his words are important enough to be included in the Gospel of Luke as the basis for the redemption in Christ. And he declared, which is recorded in Luke chapter 1, verse 61, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And his people are therein defined or understood to be the ancient children of Israel. So a little further on, he continues, and he says, and this is how Christ is visiting and redeeming his people. This is how God is visiting and redeeming his people, right? It, it's not a disconnected thought. It, it's directly related where he says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. So that's the Old Testament prophets. That we, meaning his people, should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham. So the people whom Christ came to redeem are those same people who the prophets said that Christ would redeem, and we must look to the Old Testament to identify them. And First, um, if we're being saved from our enemies, that, then who are these enemies, right? Because... When, when he spoke this, Christ wasn't even born, right? He was still in the womb of Mary, I believe. So, so who are these other people? It can't be uh, non-believers versus believers, right? Clearly, there are other races of people, right? Well, well exactly. There are other races of people, and that those other races of people can't be redeemed if they're the enemies, how could they be redeemed? That That's like a total denial of everything that Zacharias explained here, and it's a total denial 
of both the promises made to Abraham, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, and, and it's a total denial of all of the words of all of the prophets. Later, in Luke chapter 24, two men who did not quite understand the purpose of Christ were found talking on the road to Emmaus. And one of them said, as it is in the King James Version, but we trusted. In other words, they couldn't understand because Christ was crucified, right? So, so they, they didn't grasp why Israel was not apparently redeemed immediately. And the apostles also rest, I'm sorry, the apostles also wrestled with that in Luke in, in Acts chapter one, where they asked Christ just before his ascension if he was going to deliver the kingdom to Israel at that time. In other words, restore the kingdom of God on earth. And he said, no, it's not yours to know the times and the seasons. So the kingdom remained in the hands of the pagan Romans. And the Romans were Israelites, but the apostles themselves didn't really understand that until Paul of Tarsus came along with his understanding of classical history, which the apostles were only simple fishermen from the shores of the Sea of Galilee, right? They weren't schooled in history. Paul was. So these men said, and, and they're recorded as saying, in the King James Version, in Luke chapter 24, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. So they didn't quite understand the plan of God, and it was he that redeemed Israel. But they didn't understand how that had to be accomplished, right? I think they expected a redemption more along the lines of the redemption from bondage in Egypt, which was completely in a completely different manner. So, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul attested that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's what we had to be redeemed from. The Roman rule and the rule of the succession of empires and, and the tyrants that we've suffered under ever since, that is due to the seven times of punishment for Israel's having broken the law. So we really had to be redeemed, and this will be evident in the prophets, we really had to be redeemed from our sin, from death, because we would otherwise have had to pay the penalty for our sins ourselves, and all Israel would have been subject to death under the law for fornication, for idolatry, for adultery. All those things are worthy of the punishment of death by the law. And that's what Christ bought Israel back from, as we shall see. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul attested that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and explained his attempt. He, he explained his, I, I, I have a word here that's out of place. I'm sorry. Explained his intent in Galatians chapter 4, where he wrote, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Only the children of Israel were ever under the law. 
And it is demonstrable that the Galatians to whom Paul was writing certainly were descended from the ancient children of Israel. And I I did not include this in, in my notes, but it's the, the signal verse which demonstrates this is in the 137th Psalm, I believe, or the 147th Psalm, perhaps, where, where it says that God had given the law only to the children of Israel. And it actually celebrates that. It, it's in the 147th Psalm. And this Psalm, if you look at the, the, the superscript in the Psalm, it's not found in the King James Version, but it is found in the Septuagint. And it's a Psalm of praise written by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. That is how the psalm is attributed in the Greek of the Septuagint. So this was written as the second temple was being rebuilt, because that's the time that Haggai and Zechariah were both prophesying. And it says, He shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation they have and and as for his judgments they have not known them so so that's the 147th psalm and that is the attitude found throughout the old testament that only the children of israel had the law and all the other nations were accounted as the uncircumcised and were never supposed to have the law. So, so Bill, do you think the two prophets could have been friends then or, you know, worked together? Well, well, yes, they definitely knew each other. There's no doubt they were contemporaries with one another. They lived at the same time. They prophesied some of the same things. So there's no doubt in, in the small community which had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, 42,000 people with Zerubbabel in 521-520 BC, there's no doubt that they knew each other. Later, in Luke chapter 24, two men who did not quite understand, I'm, I'm sorry I'm, I'm repeating myself, I don't know how I got to there. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle describes his intended readers, Christians of the various provinces of Anatolia, as already having been redeemed, where he wrote, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And, and that phrase, last times, was an idiom for times future, or in times current, as compared to ancient times. So it's times future from ancient times. It, it doesn't mean that the end of the world was supposed to come in Peter's time, right? 
So once again, as it is in Luke, if Christ was foreordained for the purpose of redemption before the foundation of the world, then we must turn to the prophets to learn of the substance and reasons for that redemption. And, and that's only explained in the prophets. Paul described Christ's act of redeeming in Titus chapter 2 and wrote that Christians should be found looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, quoting the King James Version, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So we see that word peculiar people in what we're going to see it again in second in first Peter chapter two. We see it here in Paul in Titus chapter two. Redeem us from all iniquity is the operative phrase here. So here Paul attested to why Israel had to be redeemed, as they were in iniquity. The same Paul had explained in Romans chapter 5 that sin was a transgression of the law, and that sin was in the world before the law, but that sin is not imputed where there is no law. So only the people who could be found guilty the only people who could be found guilty in iniquity are those people who were given the law, which is only the children of Israel. So only they had to be redeemed. Before this is over, we will have discussed every single passage in the New Testament where the words redeem or redeemed or redemption are mentioned. As for the purifying of a peculiar people, Paul spoke of that in reference to that act of redemption. And Peter further addresses his readers in that same manner in chapter 2 of that same first epistle and informed them, but ye are a chosen generation. Now that word is a word which means race. Otherwise, there are no Christians at, that are chosen after the first century, right? Which is silly. But ye are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, for some reason, the King James didn't write a holy Gentile. A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness, and, and that's the darkness that the children of Israel suffered when they were sent into captivity, as we've explained here in the past, into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people. Now, how are you going to tell people that in times past they weren't a people? And we'll discuss that too. But are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And this last clause was a direct reference to Hosea chapter 1, and the words of the prophet were uttered in reference to the children of Israel in captivity. 
they were put off due to their sin and no longer considered the people of God. But they were purified in Christ and could be his people once again. It's very simple. It's a matter of prophecy, and we will discuss it again later on this evening. The word redemption is found in only one other place in the gospel, in chapter 21, where Christ used it in reference to his disciples. But it appears nine times in Paul's epistles. In Romans chapter 3, he wrote, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So if your righteousness, if your concept of righteousness in relation to redemption is not witnessed by the law and the prophets, then you're not practicing Christianity and you're not looking at the biblical redemption. You're making up your own redemption. Yet you're just contriving something. You're not following God. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the people that are redeemed must be the people who the law and the prophets said would be redeemed. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So if the righteousness of God is witnessed by the law and the prophets, only the children of Israel were given the law, and then only the children of Israel could possibly be the all of which Paul was speaking, where he wrote, for all have sinned, where he contrasts Jews and Gentiles in the King James Version. He was speaking of Israelites, of the Judeans, and Israelites, those Israelites of the nations, in reference to the nations of Israel. In Romans chapters 1 and 4, Paul had established that he was writing to people descended from the ancient Israelites, and we've already discussed that at length here in earlier proofs, especially where in the Greek manuscripts of chapter 4, he informed them that Abraham was their forefather. And one went on to profess that the promises of God were certain to all of Abraham's offspring, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. That's how Paul defined the nations, the Gentiles, if you will, as the seed of Abraham, according to that which was spoken, which is, once again, the promises made to Abraham. So we see, in the very opening of the Gospel of Luke, that the redemption 
is contingent upon the meaning of the promises made to Abraham. And the same thing is expressed here in Romans chapter 4. That is how the apostles of Christ are defining the redemption which is in Christ. That's how they're defining the purpose and mission of Christ. So how do we come off hundreds of years later imagining that these things can apply to any other people? They can't. Therefore, in Romans chapter 8, Paul spoke to them of the redemption of our body. And then he mentioned once again in Romans, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians, he mentioned redemption once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But later, in chapter 10 of that epistle, he professed that the fathers of the Corinthians were with Moses in the Exodus. So they too must have been Israelites. They had to be. In um in all these verses he's not even uh mentioning the other Adamic races, right, or nations. So not even they're included in this. Well well right, not even they're included in this. It it's this is only relevant to the children of Israel. All of this talk of redemption, when Paul spoke to the Athenians, he said not one word about the promises to the fathers. He said not one word about redemption. But the Athenians were of the Adamic or white race, so they are basically included in older promises made to the Adamic race as a whole. The promise, and, and I would contend with the church's interpretation of the very end of Genesis chapter 3, but in Genesis chapter 3, there's actually a promise to the Adamic race as a whole of immortality, and the fact that Yahweh God had created the Adamic man for the purpose of being immortal. So... That's corroborated where Christ had told the Jews, and I'll call them Jews because they were a mixed population of Edomites and Israelites in the first century in Jerusalem, but Christ had told them that the men of Nineveh, which are the Assyrians, which are another branch of the Adamic race, and then the queen of, queen of the south, who was of Sheba, of the race of Ham, that they would rise in the resurrection and condemn this race, meaning the, the Judeans, the Jews of Jerusalem. So that there's no doubt that there's a purpose of God for the entire Adamic race. But this, all of this talk about redemption and forgiving of sins doesn't relate to the other branches of the race, and it certainly doesn't relate to other races. It only relates to the ancient children of Israel. And by this time, by the time of Christ, as we've explained on many occasions, they already, the seed of Abraham already came to dominate the world. Romans didn't exist when that promise was made to Abraham. 
by all accounts, there were no Romans until the 12th century BC. 900 years after the time of Abraham, there couldn't have been any Romans because the people that became Romans weren't yet in Italy. And there were no Germans and there were no Englishmen or no Irishmen because the Phoenicians hadn't yet settled in those areas or the Scythians who were the Cymry hadn't yet migrated to those areas. These nations of Paul's time were the founding substance of the modern nations of Europe. They were all relatively new in Europe within the last 12 or 1300 years from the time that Paul spoke. And Paul understood that classical history. The other apostles didn't understand it. They came to understand certain things later as they wrote their epistles. But it took a Paul of Tarsus, a man who was educated in the classics, in in the Greek and Roman literature and history. It took a man like him to go to the scattered Israelites of Europe and show them how they had descended from the ancient Israelites. Otherwise, redemption doesn't belong to them. Christ didn't come for them. But that alone proves that they must have been Israelites. The apostles took these words of the prophet seriously. That's why they cited them and quoted them so often. They didn't just repeat things because they sounded good, because they thought they were cool. That's ridiculous. They weren't making memes. They weren't sitting on the internet and shitposting. They were actually very serious about what they were doing. They really believed that Jesus Christ was God and that they would answer to God if they didn't do the right thing. So they weren't lying. We can't imagine that they were lying. That's ridiculous. Especially when all of these things fit together in the perspective of ancient history. They fit like a glove. The next place in his epistles where Paul mentions redemption is in Ephesians chapter 1. There he wrote, in part, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to praise to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, or among the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, The forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Why would Paul speak to say any of these things to people who were never Israelites and to people who were never under the law? It would be absurd to say these things to people that were never under the law. Wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, So it's not a mystery any longer. It's made known to the apostles. And Paul said to us, so it can also be made known to the Ephesians. All they had to do is read the the gospel. 
having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Gather together in one all things in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not going to be gathered both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And the translation isn't perfect, but we've already addressed that at length earlier in the series of 100 Proofs. The word pro orizo, we discussed that as well, is predestinate in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 and chapter 1 verse 11, passages which we have just read, pro orizo. Orizo is to separate or distinguish or determine, to lay a boundary, to mark off. Pro means to do it before time. So, in the King James Version, it is translated predestinated twice in Romans chapter 8 in verses 29 and 30. But in Acts chapter 4 verse 28, it was translated as determined before which is a very literal translation, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, ordained before, which is also fine. So it should be clear that predestination is the act of choosing something beforehand. In this case, referring to people who were chosen before the foundation of the world. Furthermore, where Paul stated that his readers were predestined, predestinated, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, we should once again be able to see that will in the gospel and the prophets, or Paul could not have said that the mystery of his will and pleasure were made known. In Romans chapter 16, Paul professed this, where in relation to the same mystery he wrote, Now to him that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest... And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations. So it's already made known. There are no secrets. There is no more mystery. It's made known. Paul keeps repeating that over and over again, that it's made known. It's now made manifest. It's now made known for the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Paul didn't have some secret guide to being a priest. He had the scriptures of the prophets and the gospel, which he repeatedly refers to as being where these things are made known.
The foundation of the world, or society as we like to translate it, as it's better translated. The foundation of the world is the story of the Bible. That's where it's found. But while there was a race of men which were created, there are no men chosen until Abraham. And the promises to him were explicitly handed down to Isaac and then to Jacob alone out of his sons. Since at that time, the society of the time of Paul did not yet exist, these things happened. This was before the foundation of the world. That's how to interpret that. When those promises were made to Abraham, the world was very, very different. It was a completely different society than the society of Paul's time in the first century. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where Moses, speaking of Yahweh God, said to the children of Israel, And because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them, and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt. That's when Israel was chosen. So, That's sorry, when Israel was by society, he means really the children of Israel, their, their world, right? The, um, all the other previous society Adamic nations were just pushed aside and forgotten. And now all the new nations that came uh, from the children of Israel, well, they're still here, right? All, all the ones from the Germanic tribes, at least. And that is the world or the society, right, that he's referring to. Absolutely. And we still have many elements of, of ancient Roman society in our modern society. So, so we're basically Europe, even though the Germanic tribes were hostile to Roman society and classical Greek society, they were nevertheless, when they settled down in their habitations and accepted Christianity and began to develop as a distinct society of their own, they were nevertheless founded in many ways upon the ancient Roman and Greek society. That they're in many elements, they are an extension of that. That they first they have shared blood, right? Where, where many of the Greeks and Romans were also Israelites, and second, they have an inheritance of culture and language from the Greeks and Romans culture, language, literature. So even though they supplanted Greek and Roman society, we still carry many reflections and elements and many of the genes, the genetics of that society with us today. So it was just another and a new manifestation of what, would, what we could term as Israelite society because the Romans and the Greeks were also significantly Israelites. They had perhaps a higher degree of the blood of Ham and Japheth among them. We can't even determine that precisely. So, the children of Israel were chosen and predestinated, yet they were put off in punishment for their sins and sent off into Assyria and Babylonian captivity. 
However, that is why they needed to be redeemed. As we read in Isaiah chapter 52, which describes an act of redemption that is directly associated with the captivities of Israel, where it says, For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught. They sold themselves into sin. And ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. The Assyrians didn't have a real reason to oppress the children of Israel and take them into captivity. But Yahweh used the Assyrians to do that because they had sold themselves into sin. So they needed to be redeemed. Even earlier, in Isaiah chapter 41, we read, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom, and this is speaking prophetically, I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof. Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and this is written after the Assyrian deportations, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. It is clear this was written after the Assyrian deportations, as it is after the failed siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib, who was the Assyrian king who put Jerusalem under siege in the days of Hezekiah around 700 BC. Now, all of the deportations of the northern tribes and the destruction of Samaria and the deportation of the people of the capital city of Ephraim in Samaria and the deportations of 46 fenced cities of Judah had all already occurred. And those things occurred, as the scripture also records, from about 745 or 743 BC down to about 721 BC. And then 20 years later, Sennacherib comes and takes away a great portion of Judah, most of Judah, 46 fenced cities. Over 200,000 people were taken into captivity in one inscription alone, as it's recorded, in one inscription alone, which we have to this day. And he put Jerusalem under siege, but he failed to take it. So it wasn't taken until Babylonia, until the Babylonians destroyed it and took the rest of Judah captive into Babylonia in 585 BC. So even though most of Israel was already taken off into captivity, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. And a little later in that chapter of Isaiah, we read a specific statement indicating that Yahweh would redeem Israel. For I, Yahweh thy God, this is from verse 13, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, speaking in a denigrating fashion because of the sins of Israel. 
And ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And that worm, I sometimes suspect, is an idiom for remnant in Hebrew. But I don't know if I could prove it. Thou remnant of Jacob, and ye men of Israel, meaning those who survived the captivities. Then a little later, in Isaiah chapter 44, Yahweh is once again referred to as the Redeemer of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, his Redeemer mean, meaning Israel's Redeemer. I am the first, and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. So Yahweh is specifically the Redeemer of Israel, and there's not one promise or statement reflecting the concept that Yahweh God would redeem anybody but the children of Israel. And how could we ever understand that Christ did not do his Father's will, as it's explained in the prophets? That's blasphemy. That's bla Oh, Jesus, you're wrong. You didn't come to do your Father's will. You came to do the church's will. That's basically what they're saying. Later in that same chapter of Isaiah, Sing ye, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. And the prophets often speak about things which are promised as already having been accomplished, even if they weren't yet accomplished, right? That's how Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that God calls things which do not exist, as though they exist. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am Yahweh that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. Yahweh redeemed Jacob, but as Israel was still in captivity, the act had not actually yet been consummated. The consummation is found in Christ, and it is the purpose of the gospel to announce that redemption to Israel as the gospel itself says, Luke chapter 1. Yeah, the um, whole idea that Paul and the apostles just turned up, you know, these foreigners just turned up and preached to completely uh, foreign alien people in Greece and Rome, uh, just this new random religion from something that had nothing to do with them, right? It's, it's just insane, right? It, and you can see clear, as we've said, just you can clearly see that he's identifying them as the same people all the way throughout and identifying them as part of these prophecies that the prophets made, right? Absolutely. And if they're not part of these prophecies that the prophets made, they have no place in Christianity because Christ clearly came to fulfill these prophets. These modern churches ignore all these prophecies and only focus on where the prophets had prophesied of Christ. They focus on that, but they ignore all these other prophecies about what 
Yahweh God had intended to do through Christ. And then they twist the words of Christ to refer to all men when he said, I am come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He did not come for all men. That's not stated anywhere. Where Paul speaks about all men, it's in that same context, in the context of the children of Israel. If I'm the mayor of a city and I have authority over a particular city, and I make a decree that all men are to make themselves available to do such and such on a certain day because it's for the good of the city. You can't imagine that my decree is directed at men who inhabit some faraway city where I have no control or authority. I'm not addressing men there. So all men has to be taken in the context, within the context of the promises and the purpose of Christ for the children of Israel. And um, using that analogy, that they, that's exactly what Jews would say, right? They would get out of um, doing work because they'd say, well, well, we're not part of that city, nothing to do with us. But if that same mayor was given a free gift to all citizens, suddenly they'd turn up and, <laughs> and pretend to be right. part of the city, right? So that they could get the free gift. But in this case, redemption's only for Israel, and it doesn't matter about these other races, right? Right, it doesn't matter at all. So once again... Reading from Isaiah chapter 48, we see that promise repeated once more from verse 17. Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh thy God, which teaches thee to profit, which leads thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Then in Isaiah chapter 49, thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, addressing the children of Israel. Where it says, he shall choose thee, it speaks of the children of Israel, and not the Jews or some church. Speaking of the children of Israel in the Babylonian captivity, in the 78th Psalm, Asaph wrote, and they remembered that God was their rock and the high God their redeemer. Asaph was a prophet of the captivity. Over a hundred years after Isaiah, speaking in reference to both Israel and Judah, we read in Jeremiah chapter 33, so that it can't be said that we've gotten all of this from Isaiah, right? <laughs> Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which Yahweh has chosen, has he even cast them off? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. He has not cast them off. In Isaiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet had already prophesied of the new covenant. So in spite of that, not only in Jeremiah chapter 31, but in Ezekiel chapter 37, we read promises of a new covenant with Israel and with Israel alone. Paul's hope and his labors for the 12 tribes of Israel was ostensibly the same as that which had been expressed in the 130th Psalm, 
where we read, Let Israel hope in Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. Mercy for your sins, and redemption meaning to purchase you back from the penalty for your sins. So that you you, you so that you're granted mercy. In Jeremiah chapter 15, there is a promise of reconciliation for Israel. And we read in a passage that should be cross-referenced to Luke chapter 1, a promise. And this is verse 21 of Jeremiah chapter 15. And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. Jeremiah is addressing the children of Israel long after the deportations of Israel. In Hosea chapter 13, there is another promise of redemption for Israel, not only from sin, but this time from death. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. These prophecies, which contain specific references to the redemption of Israel and to Yahweh, their God, as their Redeemer, only they are where we may learn of the purpose and will of God in relation to redemption, and therefore it is only the children of Israel, and not all mankind, who are redeemed in Christ. We also saw in these words of the apostles that Christ was preordained for that purpose, but also that the children of Israel were preordained or predestinated for that purpose. This is evident as the word proorizo, which in the King James Version was translated as predestined, also means to ordain beforehand, and it was translated in that manner as well. Therefore, if, in the words of Paul, those who were redeemed by the cross of Christ were preordained or determined before. Then when was that determination made except in the words of these prophets? There is no scripture which bears record to the ordaining of anyone for the purposes of redemption or salvation outside of the children of Israel. The truth is, that the only people who were redeemed were those who were under the law in the first place, and they were predestinated before the foundation of the world. So we read in Romans chapter 8, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called, according to his purpose, not according to the purposes of the church according to what he said back there in the words of the prophets. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, people of the same race. 
Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. So there's no room in this, in, in all of the gifts of Christ, there's no room for anybody else. This passage should be cross-referenced to Amos chapter 3 verse 2 where once again we see the need for re for the redemption of Israel where Yahweh speaks concerning them and them alone and we read you only have i known period right there of all the families of the earth therefore i will punish you for all of your iniquities because only they were under the law anyway if Yahweh professed having known no one but Israel, then only Israel could be the foreknown. And it is only the foreknown who were also the called, the predestinated, the chosen, and the redeemed. If anyone besides Israel could be any of those things, it must be explicitly stated in Scripture and not merely claimed on the basis of mistranslated words such as Gentile or phrases taken out of context such as all men. So this leads us to another aspect related to this redemption which also describes the children of Israel and that is where Paul had described the Ephesians as strangers from the covenants. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, this whole, um, you know, predestination, uh, a lot of like Christians today believe that that's just the believers, right? That they were predestined to believe in Christ, that you don't really have a choice. God has to choose you and then you believe in Christ. So basically believers and non-believers, right? When when you look at the prophets, it's clearly a different picture. It's just the Israelites were predestined to, uh, you know, be chosen by Yahweh, inherit the whole world and essentially be Christian because he would come for them, right? That's essentially what it's saying. Well, well, right. And this goes back to a false dichotomy that this modern Christian idea goes back to a false dichotomy that was set up in the Middle Ages between, in the Reformation, between Calvin and Arminius. And Calvin was a theologian who believed in predestination, but he defined predestination by his own terms. And Arminius believed in foreknowing or being foreknown, and he defined that by his own terms. And they, there was a false dichotomy set up and a debate between the, the, the predestination followers of Calvin and the, and the foreknowledge people and, and supporters of Arminius, and Arminius lost the, the debate, and Calvinism prevailed with this concept that believers were predestined by God out of every tribe and nation and race, taking Revelation chapter, chapter 7 or chapter 14 out of context, and that they interpret the Bible backwards to arrive at the conclusion that they want to arrive at. We must interpret the Bible forwards and understand that the people that are predestined and foreknown 
are the people whom the prophets inform us are predestined and foreknown because the apostles and Christ himself are referring to those words in the prophets as the basis for their mission and their ministries. The revelation cannot be interpreted separately from the prophets. Because Christ, the revelation is the words of Christ, and Christ professed having come to fulfill the words of the prophets. That means to keep them, not to destroy them, not to negate them or, or render them dissolute. Yeah, and um, on the next part, we see if um, the covenants and Christianity was only for a specific people, then clearly there's people it's not for, right? That Paul said, uh, touch not the unclean, meaning, you know, stay away from these, uh, you know, other races, basically, Jews and all, all these other uh, beast races. And um, that essentially that, that there can only be one race that this covenant's for, right? And And if he understood that, then he would only be going to the Israelites, right? Obviously, he had to, as you just said, pass through uh, some of the Athenians, you know, and other um, Adamic races, that the remnants in Europe, and he just spoke to them on general terms. But but if you understand that they, he's only going for it to the Israelites, then clearly he must be identifying all these people as the Israelites, which we're going to see here, right, again and again, as we've said many times. Well, absolutely. And, and this is... Um... Strangers from the Covenants, and, and we're discussing this here, because in that same epistle of Paul, where we began our discussion of redemption, which was in Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 2, we read, and this is from the King James Version, Wherefore remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, and that's to, to be considered right there, that there were only Gentiles in the flesh in time past, and evidently not in time present, right? Or Paul wouldn't have said in time past. That you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, which is ridiculous, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes, who sometimes were far off, so I guess they weren't far off all the time, who sometimes were far off, are made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. And and we could poke fun at the archaic language of the King James Version. I can't help myself. First here, the Ephesians were not Gentiles in the flesh, which in the context of the time of Christ is a ridiculous statement. The Greek word ethnos never had the meaning of non-Jew or non-Greek. It never bore that meaning. The Greeks called the people who were not Greek, who did not speak Greek, barbarians, and not Gentiles, or ta ethne, which is the plural form with a definite article, and that is the form here. Furthermore, 
if Paul really wrote to them that ye in time past, ye being Gentiles in the flesh, then he was also asserting that the Ephesians were no longer Gentiles in the flesh. And if by Gentile, Paul was referring to non-Jews, does that mean that Gentiles converted to Christianity somehow become Jews? And if so, then how could there be people who are not Christians that are still called Jews? If you were in t- if Gentile means non-Jew, let me see if I'm I'm presenting this argument correctly. If Gentile means non-Jew, and you became converted to Christianity, so you were a Gentile in the flesh in time past. That would mean that you're not a Gentile in the flesh now, so are you a Jew? That, that's the only conclusion I could, I could reach by that. But even further, if Christians are no longer to be of any nation, then how are the leaves of the tree of life in the city of God for the healing of the nations, as we read in Revelation chapter 22? Or how could there be nations of them which are saved in Revelation chapter 21? But those nations are also the children of Israel. Since Paul used a definite article accompanying the word, which really means nations and not Gentiles, then he was referring to definite nations and not just any nations. Every man is a member of one ethnos or another, even a Jew. But Paul was informing them that they were the nations in the flesh. And in relation to Scripture and the promises of God, that means they were among those nations which were of the seed of Abraham, the many nations which his descendants would become, for which reason Paul was communicating to them this message. Paul used a similar statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he described Israel according to the flesh as being one and the same as the nations, not Gentiles, which were sacrificing to idols. Paul is telling these people that they are Israelites, that they are the nations, which were the subjects of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the flesh. Additionally, we must note that in the clause, in that clause, the King James Version added a word which is not in the, the original, which is being. So that alters the, the interpretation of, of the passage to some degree. Furthermore, the word aliens in verse 12 is a noun in English. But the Greek word from which it was translated, apolatrio, is a verb, which means to estrange or to alienate. And it is not a noun. So leaving intact all which we can of the original King James language, we must translate the Greek passage to read. Wherefore, remember that ye in times past, the nations in the flesh, now there's a parenthetical 
comment or parenthetical remark, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So the Jews despised, despised the Israelites scattered abroad. And we see that even in Samaria with the woman at the well who professed to being an Israelite, but yet she was despised by the Judeans. That at that time, now that's what Paul wants them to remember. Wherefore, remember that you in times past, the nations in the flesh, that at that time you were without Christ, being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes or at one time were afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. Now, I didn't prepare to discuss the definition of that word strangers here, but a xenos is a guest friend, someone with the expectation of hospitality. The only manner by which these people could have an expectation of hospitality from Christ is to have been of the lost sheep of the house of Israel for whom he came, right? Otherwise, they were dogs, and they would not be receiving the gospel of Christ, as he said to the Canaanite woman. So that word xenos, as a stranger, does not refer to someone of another race. It refers to someone who has an expectation of your hospitality or kindness or some other accommodation. The children of Israel were strangers to the covenants of promise because they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Paul is explaining that here. In order to be alienated from something, one must have at one time been a part of that thing. There is another word in verse 19 of this chapter, which is, this is Ephesians chapter 2, which is sojourners, but which the King James Version translated as foreigners, where it says, now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Liddell and Scott explain that paroikos is an adjective which means dwelling beside or near. And then, where it is used as a substantive or noun, it is a sojourner or alien, where they cite the New Testament. It's often used as sojourner in the New Testament, but here it's all of a sudden foreigners, and that does not fit the context. The corresponding noun, Paroikia is defined as a sojourning in a foreign land, where they also cite the New Testament. But there are other ways to say alien to refer to people of another race. And a paroikos can only be an alien if he is the one who is engaged in a paroikia or sojourning.
whereby he is an alien only from the perspective of the people of the land where he is sojourning. And I don't, I don't know if I'm presenting this argument quite explicitly enough either. But you yourself are not from Florida. So if you come to Florida to visit, you cannot call me a paroikia, a sojourner. How could you do that? I'm the one that lives here. You're the sojourner. You're the paroikia. You can't use that term of me. Paul may have been seen as a paroikis by the Ephesians because Paul was from Tarsus or, or Judea even, as they would perceive him. He wasn't from Ephesus. So Paul may have been seen as a paroikis by the Ephesians, but an Ephesian in his own land could not have been a paroikis to Paul. As it was Paul who was in their land. He's the foreigner. They can't be a paroikis in that perspective. They would be telling them to get lost. That's like, what if a Mexican comes into your neighborhood and starts calling you the sojourner? Like he belongs and you don't. That's an affront. <laughs> that's a... <laughs> That's basically an offense. Here, clearly the, talking about their um, ancestry, right? With their original home that they were cast away from Yahweh. Precisely. And that now they have a path back, right? Precisely. That's the only legitimate way he can call them sojourners. Paroikos. Paroikoi in, in plural. Here, the Ephesians to whom Paul writes are not in Israel or in any other land but Ephesus. So being Ephesians in Ephesus, they, they cannot be aliens in the manner of a paroikos unless they are not originally from Ephesus. So Paul is essentially, by using that word paroikos in reference to them, he is essentially informing the Ephesians that they are descendants of the ancient Israelites, who in ancient times were alienated from Israel because, historically speaking, they were not really from Ephesus. Moreover, the covenants of promise are not a reference to the Levitical covenant, which was not of promise. Rather, the Levitical covenant, the covenant at Sinai, demanded the obedience of Israel, and for that, they were put off in punishment, and the covenant was broken, as it is explained quite explicitly in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in Zechariah chapter 11. The covenants of promise are the unconditional covenants made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which Yahweh had to keep, and for which he promised a new covenant which is, as we see in Luke chapter 1 and several times in other places in the New Testament, especially in Romans chapters 15 and 16, which were the basis of the New Testament, the New Covenant. The New Covenant was not founded or predicated upon the Levitical Covenant. The New Covenant was founded upon the promises to the fathers found in the older covenants which Yahweh God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is why in Galatians, in chapter 3, 
Paul explains that the promises made to Abraham, the law which came 430 years later, does not nullify. The new covenant, based on those promises to the fathers, was also promised exclusively to the children of Israel and to nobody else in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel's chapters 20, 20, 34, and 37. So if the Ephesians were Israelites who were scattered among the nations by Yahweh, as foretold by the prophets, then they would be sojourners. And Paul is describing them as having been alienated from Israel. Sojourners are emigrants. They're not merely immigrants. And somebody who emigrates from another place into your land is an immigrant from your perspective, but an emigrant from his own perspective. He's the sojourner, not you. A people alienated from their own nation and living abroad are sojourners for that reason. Paul could not have called the Ephesians par oikos if they were in Ephesus unless they were really not originally from Ephesus and he was explaining that to them. Speaking of the punishment of Israel, we read in Jeremiah chapter 14 from the Septuagint, O Lord, thou art the hope of Israel, and delivers us in time of troubles. Why art thou become as a sojourner upon the land, or as one born in the land, yet turning aside for a resting place? And there in that same, in that passage, this same word, paroikos, appears where the in English, we see sojourner. So after making this statement, describing the Ephesians as having been strangers or sojourners, and as having been alienated from Israel, Paul attests that they were, from that time, fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon, and this is important, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Therefore, once again, we must understand that all of these statements in the New Testament must be understood in accordance with the prophecies concerning the ancient children of Israel in the Old Testament. When we come back next week, we shall revisit the epistle to the Ephesians once again when we discuss Paul's having referred to his ministry as the ministry of reconciliation. And just like you can't be redeemed unless you were at one time owned in the first place, then you can't be reconciled unless you were at one time together in the first place. First, we will discuss the subject of adoption but that won't be until we return. Yeah, so we, we see over and over and over again that the King James Version innovated on a lot of translations, just made up new translations, right? And if you look at dictionaries, a lot of times they use the King James as the authority to um, you know prove that these translations are apparently accurate. And a lot of the later translations use the King James again as the authority, right? We see that over and over again, right? <sighs> Absolutely. 
because it's easier and safer to repeat somebody else's mistakes than to be looked upon as an innovator. But we are not innovators. We are explaining Christianity as it should be explained according to the law and the prophets, which is what Christ had come to fulfill. If I'm wrong, you better show me in the prophets and in the law where I'm wrong. I would challenge them to do that. Show me in the books of the prophets and the law where Gentiles were going to be saved or where Gentiles were going to be redeemed or where Gentiles were going to be adopted. I challenge anybody to show me that, please. Straighten me out. Show me in Isaiah where it says that Yahweh God is going to redeem the Gentiles. I want to see. In the sense that the word Gentile means non-Jew. It's not in there anywhere. Yeah, but it's not Once anywhere. you get rid of all these uh, mistranslations, all the, the uh, church doctrines just fall apart immediately, don't they? Well, right. And, and that's why we took five different sessions of these presentations to discuss the mistranslations in Paul's epistles. And we rolled all that up into proof number 25 to get the mistranslations off our chest to, to explain them. But these things all stand, that these individual topics all stand as proofs of their own. The subjects of redemption, the subjects of adoption, that the commission of Paul and how Paul had saw that he should fulfill his commission because it was the hope of the 12 tribes. And there were never 12 tribes in Palestine. If you read Flavius Josephus, he says that there are only two tribes in Judea subject to the Romans, period. And even those two tribes are only a small portion of the tribe, of, of the, the original substance of those two tribes. Only a small portion of Judah and Benjamin ever came back to Jerusalem. Now, there were other portions that had never returned that were scattered in, in and we read of them in Acts chapter 2. There were, and, and this is the reason why Peter was in Babylon. At the end of his first epistle, he admitted being in Babylon. Why? Because Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. And at that time, there were still legitimate people of Judah and Benjamin and Levi who were scattered in, north, in the cities of northern Arabia in and around Babylonia and in Persia and, and Syria and certain other places that were actually remnants of Judah and Benjamin who had never left the places where they were forced to settle by the Babylonians. Now, there were many Scythians or, or the Israelites of the deportations at that time who were still in northern Syria and far northern Anatolia, around the coast of the Black Sea. And many of them had later migrated into Europe, and there's historical evidence of this. But in the first century, 
there were many of them still around the Caucasus Mountains and the cities of the Medes in the north and Assyria, what used to be Assyria in the far north. So some of them, it's, it's possible that some of the Israelites taken by the Assyrians were still in some of those places and maintained their, their ancient Levitical traditions. That's possible. Okay, for instance, Ezra in the 5th century had sent to Cassithia for priests, and I'm positive that that's a reference to Caspiana, a, a city on what we call the Caspian Sea today, where it was near the district of ancient Parthia in Media, and it's where many of the Israelites had been settled by the Assyrians. So there may have been some remnants remaining in Mesopotamia and northern Syria. That's very possible. And there was certainly remnants of Judah and Benjamin and Levi in those areas. And that's why, and they maintained the Levitical traditions. And that's why Peter went to Babylonia, Babylon, because he was the apostle to the circumcision. So, and, and that was agreed upon by the apostles in the book of Acts. So, with, with, with that being said, most of Judah and Benjamin were taken into the Assyrian deportations, and ostensibly, they eventually migrated into Europe along with the other tribes of Israel, according to the words of the prophets. So, not all of Judah and Benjamin were in the bounds of the Roman Empire, but Flavius Josephus had informed us that only parts of those tribes were within the bounds of the Roman Empire, as he understood it. And Flavius Josephus told us that beyond the river Euphrates, in the Caucasus mountain regions of ancient Media, there was an innumerable multitude of Israelites in his times. And that would be the Scythians of Sacasene and along the Araxes River and the Scythians that migrated across the Araxes River and eventually migrated up through the Caucasus Mountains and into Europe. So Flavius Josephus tells us very well the same story about the composition of Judea that the Old and New Testaments tell us that these are only remnants of people that returned from Babylon to reestablish Jerusalem. And it's only the tribes of, it's only elements of and Levi. So if Flavius Josephus tells us that the other tribes aren't in Judea under Roman rule, where are they? And how could Paul, how could James write to 12 tribes scattered abroad? And how could Paul take his ministry to the 12 tribes whom in the book of Acts he professed laboring for on behalf of those 12 tribes? Nobody else. He said it several times as we've discussed here just last week when we discussed Paul's commission. And where are these nations and kings that were to come from Abraham's seed? That's why Paul went to Europe.
And if one of them's white, they're all white because they're all the same family. It's, it's we have every basis in scripture from every angle of scripture. Christian identity is true and any other interpretation of Christianity is a lie. And all of the denominational churches teach nothing but lies. They lie, 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 lie. Everything they say is a lie. If a priest is moving his mouth, he's probably lying. Just like a Jew. When a Jew moves his mouth, he's definitely lying. That's the sad state of the world, right? Yes, it is. That's why the, the wisdom of this world. And, and that's why God is, is going to destroy the wisdom of this world, because it's all based on misunderstandings and lies. And, and this is from... That this, you know, apostolic Christianity, I always say it was persecuted out of existence and replaced by a different form of Christianity, and, and that was replacement theology, and that's as early as the second century. And, and it, it was based on the Roman Catholic Church was predicated upon Jewish lies and subterfuge. Because it accepted the replacement theology of Origen, Clement of Alexandria, and Justin Martyr. And I'm not saying that those men authored replacement theology, but perhaps that's what they were taught. But it's not the Christianity of Paul of Tarsus. And we see a divergence in Christianity in the book of Acts where there were tens of thousands, according to the apostle, the words of the apostle James, there were myriads, that's a 10,000, and in the plural, that's tens of thousands, myriads of Christians in Judea who believed the gospel of Christ, but despised Paul of Tarsus because they saw him as setting aside the laws of Moses in the Levitical Covenant where Paul was teaching correctly that the works of the Levitical covenant were done away with in Christ, and so was the Levitical priesthood done away with in Christ. So the Catholic Church maintained the idea that we should have a priesthood, which is a lie, and then it admitted Roman pagans as being Christian priests. And once Roman, there is no... Even in Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria and Origen, you won't find the term Christian priest. That I, I've never read that anywhere, and I've searched for it in all of those writers. I've never read it until the time of Eusebius in the 4th century, 330 AD, when the term Christian priest pops up. Tertullian in 280 AD, I've never seen him use the term Christian priest. Every time he refers to a priest, he's referring to a pagan or to a Levite. So Christianity was drastically changed as the Jews crept in and they couldn't destroy it, but they crept in and subverted it and claimed that they were Israel when they were really only a remnant, a mixed race remnant of two tribes, they claimed that they were Israel and convinced the Christian world, which was ignorant for the most part, that they were Israel. So Christians were forced to develop replacement theology or accept replacement theology. And replacement theology is wrong, it's a lie, and so are the Jews. Okay, that's my rant for today.
thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, as always, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Thank you.